Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. God's discipline is always for good and the cross is the ultimate example of that. God's discipline always gives hope. If there's something that can be relied on, it's the Word of God. God's Word has stood the test of time and many attacks on its credibility. It's God's Word that encourages us to obey God and warns of the consequences of not. It was Jeremiah's job to bring the Word of God to the people and they didn't always like it. Tonight, Dr. Corbett is in Jeremiah chapter 30. It's a time of distress for Jacob. Time of distress for Jacob. There's a couple of interesting points about this. Firstly, when Israel was ruled by one king, and that the last king of the united Israel was Solomon. Very interesting that all the kings from King Saul up to David had a prophet in their ear. Solomon's the only king that didn't have a prophet in his ear. There was not a prophet holding him to account. Here's the question. How did his kingdom go? It went, to, to pardon the pun, but it went south. It literally went south because after he died, the southern tribes and the northern tribes went into civil war. And eventually the, the ten northern tribes uh, rebelled so far away from God that he just took them out. And now while there was a scattering of people who the Bible calls a remnant, who were part of the southern tribes, the southern tribes took on the name Judah. And eventually, we, we see here that God actually refers to the southern tribes as Jacob or Israel as well. So that's an interesting point. I, I hope that'll become a little bit clearer. So let's have a look. Verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Verse 2, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel... Write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you. Now, I, I want you to notice this is the first time God has said this to Jeremiah. Every other occasion when God has spoken to Jeremiah, it has been with the instruction, speak these words. Declare this. Now, God is saying, write this in a book. Isn't that interesting that of all the medium? Uh, media that God has available, the mediums that God has available to communicate his word, he chose the written word as the most effective means of communicating his truth. Before we press on, I want to give some what I hope will be some helpful understanding of this because in, in Islam they have this idea that, that God communicated to Muhammad in a dictation sense you know write this down exactly and he had to the the term is mechanically dictate what was written or what was given to him that's not what we believe we believe god moved men to write that's what the scripture says god moved men he he breathed inspiration into men so what does that look like well i want to introduce a term called verbal plenary inspiration plenary means all of it it's this is all so verbal plenary, in other words, God spoke and everything we have recorded here is God's word. But because it's verbal, not literary, it means that God used the, the, the people that, that he, he gave inspiration to, he actually used their vocabulary. 
At times we find God even used their understanding, even though their understanding was limited. God breathed on them to record their understanding in Scripture. So, for example, we have some of the Old Testament writers saying, the sun came up and the sun went down. Now, you, you and I both know we talk like that all the time because that's what it looks like, doesn't it? It looks like the sun goes up and the sun goes down. And the sun's, what's actually happening? The earth is rotating. And it gives the appearance of the sun going up, sun going down. But in fact, it's the earth rotating. Now, we know that. We know that's scientifically accurate. But God breathed on men to record their perspective. And we often will find also that God accurately records through people events that he condemned. And now as I'm reading through Genesis, I'm about to read about Tamar being raped. And I'm about to read of her two brothers going in and killing the men of that village from where the the man came who raped her. And people go, look at this, how could God ordain and sanction this kind of brutality in the scripture? And the simple answer is he didn't. He didn't order it. He didn't ordain it. He didn't sanction it. But it's accurately recorded. And you could follow this through, you know, if I said to you there are lies in the Bible, you'd go, oh, well, yeah, God accurately records the lies that were told. For example, Satan comes, uses the serpent, says, the day you eat of this, your eyes will be open and you will become like God. That's a lie. But it's accurately recorded in Scripture. So when God breathed on men to record Scripture, They were able to use their expressions of speech. We see this in the writings of Dr. Luke, where he actually uses medical terms to communicate Paul. He actually uses uh, terms that are familiar to doctors. The Apostle Peter uses terms of Greek philosophy in his language. The Apostle John used the ultimate Greek philosophical concept, which is called the Logos. And he actually said the Logos is Jesus. So God breathed on people. They're able to use their own expression of speech, their own experiences, and sometimes their own understanding of the world. And so here's God telling Jeremiah, write this down in a book. We know that there was a fellow by the name of Baruch that made a copy of it, and we're going to read about this later on. So copies were made of it. Even when it was destroyed, God inspired Jeremiah to write it all again, and it was preserved. And here's the principle that I want us to be really, really confident about. That God has ensured the preservation of his word despite vicious attacks against it. I mean, the fact that we're able to read Jeremiah chapter 30 verses 1 to 7 tells us this text has been preserved for over two and a half thousand years. And we can, in 1948, when they actually found a whole set of scrolls in a, a, a cave just outside of Jerusalem, they were actually able to find these vellum made these are things made of leather and they could take they could find, they found manuscripts that dated back hundreds of years bc of the scrolls of isaiah that match exactly what we have today and it, it, it a whole lot of atheists just had to shut down and shut up after that because they had criticized christians for believing that this was actually what some bloke by the name of isaiah wrote and all the rest of it so we, we have really good confidence to trust that this is the accurate word of God today. Really good confidence. And God 
has preserved his word, as I say, despite vicious attacks. This is a key verse that I hope you've all heard before. If you're new to Christianity, you're new to church, then this might help you to understand what we're kind of talking about. This is what the Bible says about itself. Every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice that every scripture, every scripture is inspired by God. So it's not that there are some parts of the Bible that are inspired and there are other parts that are more inspired. Every part of it, every scripture is God-breathed. We're back in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 3. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they will take possession of it. Okay, what, what we're about to read of is a, a time of pain and distress for Judah, whom God calls Israel at this point. So that he's, he's now associating Israel as being with Judah. We, we could follow this pictorially. We could show that when God called Abraham, he took him as a branch out of uh, Chaldea, which is Babylon, and planted him in Canaan. And, and eventually that, that little sapling became a big tree under King David and King Solomon. And then after Solomon, the tree was split in half. That bit died off, kind of. And this bit continued to grow. And then eventually uh, we, we come to this period where these guys are about to be cut off as well. And all we're left with is a stump. This is the picture that the Bible paints. And then Isaiah in Isaiah 11 says, out of that stump will grow a shoot. And that shoot will be the true Israel. And that shoot will grow into a tree. And people who were not naturally a part of that tree will be picked up and grafted in to that tree. And that's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 9. And he says that shoot is Jesus. And he says the bits that have been grafted in are you, if you know Jesus. Paul writing to the Galatians, a Gentile church, he said this, you are the true Israel of God. Hmm. Interesting that God uses that term Israel, not ethnically all the time. And Israel's distress would stop and God would restore them, restore their fortune. So ultimately, I've just given you a little overview there of how that prophecy was ultimately fulfilled by Christ and what he did. And I know that there are people who read this and say, well, there you go, Benjamin Netanyahu, Netanyahu needs all the help he can get to go and kill more Palestinians and kill more Jordanians and kill more Syrians and kill more Lebanese. And, and he has the biblical right to fulfill that prophecy of, of Jeremiah to have his land, their land, restored to them. And I think that is whacked. Thank you. Resounding vote of confidence in my ability to determine if something's whacked or not but all right so we move on verse four these are the words that the lord spoke concerning israel and judah now uh, what what i want you to see is that because what we're about to read is of a time of distress that's coming but we're in the section where jeremiah is giving hope of a new covenant now why do i think it's whacked to say that a people can go and kill whoever they want to kill today 
and believe that they are doing the will of God. Because, because that was never the will of God. That was never the will of God for people to kill whoever they wanted to kill and do whatever they wanted to do. Never. And it's certainly not today. And it betrays the real heart of God. And the real heart of God is that Jesus Christ and his offer of forgiveness, I like that translation in the message, his aggressive offer of forgiveness, fantastic, is available to all people despite their ethnicity. You may be a Jew, a Greek, a Martian, it doesn't matter. Well, I suppose if you're Martian it might, but... It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your skin colour is. It doesn't matter who your parents were. Jesus Christ died for you. Your ethnicity, your skin colour, your religious background, your church background or no background doesn't matter. Jesus Christ died for you. And so when we read God's word and we read of these things, it's really important that everything we read, we understand this. God's word always encourages obeying God. And it warns of the consequences for not. Now, you might think, what? That's a pretty random comment, Andrew. What's that doing in there? It's in the context that we have seen in the previous chapters that Jeremiah is prophesying here. And there's a whole group of other people. He is by far in the minority. There's a whole group of other people over here, the false prophets, who are prophesying this Babylonian army, God will destroy them. They won't invade us. It'll never happen. We've got the temple. That's where God lives. We've got his address. He will never let people in to destroy his home. We're safe. Nothing bad will ever happen to us. And Jeremiah's going, you're wrong. You are slaughtering your children. You are committing adultery. You are um, worshipping foreign gods and all the time saying that you are in, in right standing with God. And Jeremiah says, you are not obeying God. God is going to discipline you. Whenever God disciplines, he always does it for good. He always does it in hope. And he always does it to restore. Let's go to the next verse. We're verse 6. Now, ask now and see, uh, can a man bear a child? No, that's a rhetorical question. In other words, a question that has an obvious answer. Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labour? Why has every face turned pale? Okay, so men are going around like this. Men are going, oh, what, what's the picture? It hurts. It hurts. And God uses this picture as being like childbirth. And this is going to be Jeremiah's point. The distress you're about to go through is because God is disciplining you and it won't Last, God has your good intentions in mind, so it won't last. So really important to get this picture. If you're wondering, what is that about? That's, that's kind of what it's about. And here we go, verse 7. This is where we're going to finish up. Alas, that day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, and he shall be saved out of it. Do you get that? Just that it just slips in a little bit of hope. Do you get that? He shall be saved out of it. So all the negative, all the bad stuff, all the famine, sword and pestilence, and Jeremiah is now putting in these little new covenant messages. Because it's only the new covenant that gives anything in the Bible the right to claim that God's people have any hope at all. So I want you to see this. And I hope parents can translate this into their parenting as well. 
Facts about God's discipline. Why was God going to do this? Surely there was another way. Could he just come in and just kind of rapture out all the bad guys and drop them in the valley of Hinnom or something? You know, couldn't he just, just, well, they're out of the way. Surely you all get your act together now. Why this? Why was God going to use such dire discipline? And, the, and I was listening to someone who said the, the reason we struggle to understand why God would be so severe is because the things that they did, that God was so angry about and he took such severe discipline over um, adultery, pornography, child abuse, idolatry, direct ignorance of his word, distorting his word. Those are the things God has ticked about. That's why these people are being punished. But did you notice that list? Which of these aren't we in culture today doing? In other words, we are so immersed in the very rebellion that we're now reading about, we don't see what the problem is. We're just like, it's not that bad. Okay, he has a moral problem. You know, he's he's cheated on his wife 500 times. Like, geez, give the guy a break. We're in the grace. Now, you should be going, well, I'm torn. I... Because we should be showing people grace, but there's something not right about that picture. And if you've read Philip Yancey's book, Amazing Grace, he actually gives that exact scenario where he has a friend of his come and tell him or ask him, Philip, I hear you talk about grace. Can you just reassure me, is God a God of grace? Yes, he is. Okay, I've got something to tell you. I'm about to go and commit adultery on my wife. And Philip Yancey was torn. If you've read the book, you, you know the story. Where he says, well, I didn't know what to say to him because God is a God of grace. He is a forgiving God. But yet there's something in me that says, that's not right. And I, I, I guess if I'd just walked past the table at the time, I just would have flicked Titus chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Philip Yancey's way and said, read that. Because it says the grace of God has appeared saving us and training us to obey God and live in all righteousness and godliness. That's what the grace of God does. So when a church says to a people, hey, we're saved by grace, but grace doesn't mean you've got to get out of jail code. You can do, go and do whatever you want. That's not what it means because if you've been saved by grace, that grace is training you to do right things. So here's some facts about God's discipline that we need to understand. It's always for good. God's discipline is always for good. David quoted from Hebrews 13 and that whole chapter there, uh, well, from chapters 12 into 13, if you read it, you, you read about the struggle of obedience, the struggle that, and, and they, it starts off in chapter 12 talking about that Jesus experienced that struggle. In fact, if I, if I had had the time, I would have talked about the, the, the deep emotions, the feelings that Jesus had as he was approaching the cross. Because I think that's the example of, of you don't live your life based on feelings. Because Jesus clearly was having all kinds of feelings about what was about to happen to him. And we, we're, we're hearing prayers like, Father, take, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Wow, there's a man who's having some feelings and yet it says that God's discipline was on him and he learned obedience wow by what he suffered 
amazing. So God's discipline is always for good. And the cross is the ultimate example of that. God's discipline always gives hope. Always gives hope. We read this, that there will be a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved. Yet he shall be saved. God's discipline always gives hope. Nextly, God's discipline is always designed to restore. In other words, if you've got something that God needs to discipline in your life and he disciplines you, the, the goal is that you stop doing that so that you can do what he has called you to do better. God's discipline is always designed to restore. Now I want you to think about those three words because you may feel like you have lost a lot in life and you need restoration. I'm telling you now, Jesus is the only one who can restore your life. You may feel that your life is not good and I want you to understand that what we're seeing here, the reason God was going to restore Israel was so that the Messiah could be born. And God did restore Israel. They were sent away to Babylon, but he did bring them back. As Jeremiah says in chapter 29, after 70 years. And they came back and established their ethnicity with the land again so that eventually the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And he would be one of them and he would be born in the land, which was necessary for him. As a result of the Messiah being born, as a result... Of Jeremiah saying, you shall be saved and God shall restore you to the land, which he did. As a result of Israel's history, the Messiah now can give you a good future. A good future. And there are some of you perhaps listening to me right now, and you know if you keep going the way you're going, you're not headed for a good future. But if you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you will discover that he can give you a good future future new testament puts it this way philippians 1 6 and i'm sure of this says the apostle paul writing from a prison cell shackled and manacled suffering for jesus that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of jesus christ so if you are a christian you are following christ god is able to complete ultimate good for you if you keep walking with jesus when As a result of Israel's history, the Messiah can now give you hope. You may think there's no hope. There's no way out. Jesus can give you a way out. But notice this. This is a a powerful verse in Romans 8. I wish everybody was born with this tattooed on the inside of their eyelids so that every time you closed your eyes, you just saw Romans 8.20 and got this because it says, For all creation is subject to futility. Do you get that? All For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And at this point, if that's all we saw in the verse, we think, yeah, the devil is subjected to creation, to futility. When he tempted Eve and she sinned and plunged all mankind into sin. Stupid woman. Notice the Bible says Eve was deceived and Adam sinned. Do you get that? One of them was tricked and it wasn't Adam. Just a point. All creation is subject to futility. What's futility? Heartache, disappointment, pain, injury, tragedy, loss of life, cancer. That's futility. Notice what it says? For the creation. All of creation is subject to that. We think, yeah, thanks a lot, devil. But we haven't finished the verse, have we? 
What's the last two words? In hope. And I've got to tell you now, there is nothing about hope related to the devil. In other words, when creation was subjected to futility, when, when, when mankind fell, God instantly instigated hope. And he, he could foresee down the ages to 2013. He could foresee the cancer. He could foresee the blood-borne diseases. He could see single-cell sickle anemia. He could see it all. He could see it all. And he said, that won't be the defining thing for my people. I will give hope that one day I will wipe every tear away. One day I will give them a place where there is no more pain, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more sorrow. And they will come in and enjoy ultimate bliss. That's our hope. All creation was subject to futility, but not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. As a result of Israel's history, the Messiah can restore you. And this is how First Peter, and I'm just about done, First Peter 5.10 says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, notice this word, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Wow. In summing all of this up, in 1747, Charles Wesley wrote this. Summing up those three things we've just seen. Love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down, fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. Breathe, O breathe, thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find thy promised rest. Take away the love of sinning, Alpha and Omega be. End of faith as its beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. Come, almighty, to deliver. Let us all thy life receive. Graciously return and never, never more thy temples leave. Thee we would always be blessing. Serve thee as thy hosts above. Pray and praise thee without ceasing. Glory in thy precious love. Finish then thy new creation. Pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation. Perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love and praise. God's word encourages us to obey God and warns of the consequences of not. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, A Time of Distress for Jacob, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For regular updates and special offers, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. 
Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.